Well, it's a delight to be with you this morning and open God's Word. If you don't already have it open, I would encourage you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 8. And as David said, it's on page 843 in your pew Bible, which is the same translation that I will be using this morning. When we come to uh, Sunday morning and you come here to this church, I trust that you're not coming to hear from me. If you do, you're going to be woefully disappointed. I trust that you're coming to hear from God. And the fact that we believe that this word of God is the word of God. And as such, we we believe that God's word, when it's taught correctly, does a creative act of change. A creative act of change. If you were to go all the way in your Bible back to the very beginning, the book of Genesis, we would know that God said, let there be light And there was light. Light was turned on in this world. The moon, the sun. We know that later on in Scripture, when God told the sun to stand still, it stood still. God's word is powerful. It does a creative act of change. It brought the sun to a halt. You might recall earlier in Mark chapter 4, verse 35... We're at the command of Christ, the Son of God. The sea that was rough, the wind that was blowing, went from deadly to a perfect calm. So we open the Bible this morning with great expectation. We open the Bible this morning with the expectation that God is going to speak to us this morning. And we believe that He will, that He is, And that he is going to do a creative act of change in our lives. So we approach this text this morning with great hope and great expectation. Now, if you were to have your Bible open there, you see Mark 8. And you may have listened to David read that and think, that sounds awfully familiar. Didn't didn't the pastor just preach on that subject? Didn't we just go through a similar situation here? And we have. Back in Mark 6, Christ did an almost identical, miraculous work. If you were to look, if you have your pew Bible open, you just look to the left, you'll see that in verse 44 of Mark 6, Christ feeds the 5,000. And here, with, in Mark 8, he feeds 4,000. In the 5,000, he does so with five loaves and two fish. Here in the 4,000, he does so with seven loaves and a few small fish. So if we come to the Word of God each Sunday morning with expectation of His ability to do a creative act of change in our lives for His glory and our good, then instead of simply glossing casually over the passage that seems so familiar, we we take out that magnifying glass and we peer deeper in. We're looking, we're trusting that if this is God's Word, there's a reason and there's a message for us. Now, I don't know all that's going on in your life, and if you're a visitor this morning, I certainly don't probably know anything that's going on in your life. And I probably know very little of what has actually happened in your life this last week. And you really might be quite tempted to say, now look, Pastor, if you really knew what I've been going through, you wouldn't... You would not only preach verse by verse, 
you especially wouldn't preach almost an identical passage. I need a sermon on anxiety. I need, I need a sermon on relationship problems. I need a sermon on how do I know God's will for this large decision in my life? Or whatever it is for you this morning. Really? Do you really think that a similar passage is going to help this morning? If you get a bad cut and you have to go to the doctor, and you walk into the doctor's office, the nurse comes in and states, well, you've got a bad cut, you're going to be okay, we're going to put this Band-Aid on it, pay the receptionist, have a great day. Well, the, the nurse may be very correct in what she says, but your response probably isn't going to be, sounds good, thanks. No, you want to hear from the doctor. I'm here, I'm paying, I want to know who really has wisdom about this cut. No offense, but I want to hear from the person who has more experience, who understands the human body better, who has more training, so forth and so on. And by way of example, whatever it is for you this morning that you're dealing with that seems big, that may not seem to be even addressed from this passage, what you need more than a fix of that problem, which is real, a band-aid on the cut, is to hear from God. To hear from the Bible, to hear about Jesus, to see again afresh that God, who is infinitely powerful, perfectly holy, completely just, all-knowing, all-seeing, has something for us and is going to speak to us and is going to address what we really need, not what we may think is the problem. The nourishment that you really need that God has for us this morning is this truth. And if you're taking notes, you might jot this down. That the compassionate, all-satisfying Christ is the bread of life to all who will believe. What does that mean? That the compassionate, all-satisfying Christ is the bread of life to all who will believe. Well, let's look at the passage. Look with me at Mark 8, 1 through 21. We're going to be... Uh, by way of note-taking, if you like, examining this passage under three points, and here they are. Verse 1 through 10, we're going to look at the fact that Christ provides for our physical needs. Christ provides for our physical needs. 11 through 13, belief is a prerequisite to understanding Christ. Belief is a prerequisite to understanding Christ. 14 through 21, the compassion of Christ never ceases to feed the believer. Compassion of Christ never ceases to feed the believer. Point number one, Christ provides for our physical needs. If you look at the Bible there in front of you at verses one through 10, you're going to notice a few things. First of all, a great crowd has gathered and this has been a seemingly a regular occurrence. It says, when again a great crowd had gathered. This one's slightly different in the fact that they have been with Christ for three days. And it seems that whatever provisions they had brought had run out. And Christ sees this situation. He responds in compassion to their physical need. And he tells the disciples of his concern. And they respond with a question of how can one feed all of these people out here in this abandoned place? There's no food, there's no bread around here. And then Christ then proceeds to take what they have on hand, which is 
a small meager offering of seven loaves and a few fish and gives thanks separately for each and then distributes them by way of the disciples. And the great power of Christ as the Son of God does this miraculous work of multiplication and 4,000 people, Matthew tells us 4,000 men plus women and children were fed to the point of satisfaction. And if that wasn't enough, there are leftovers, plenty of them, seven large baskets full. Now Mark 6 records the feeding of the 5,000. So why is Christ doing this again? Sort of this question of 5,000 is a large number, why now 4,000? And to put it simply, I think it's the power of repetition. It is Christ's desire that his disciples get it, get the message, get who he is as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, to understand his power and his character. And to put it plainly and and quite bluntly, the 12 weren't the sharpest tools in the shed. Uh, You could say that with great authority. I mean, we would hope that as believers, we would be sitting there watching 5,000 plus women and children. I mean, as much as 15 to 20,000 fed from five loaves, two fish. Thinking about you. I don't think I need to see anything else. But here he is again teaching them. They didn't get the lesson back in chapter 6. So here in chapter 8, Christ gives the lesson again. But he's a good teacher. He's the best. And so as a good teacher, he doesn't just put the lesson on repeat. He provides a different angle. and He provides a few wrinkles to help them get the point. So if you've got your Bible open... Put your finger on Mark 6.35 and then, and then look over at Mark 8. And I want you to notice some differences, some wrinkles. In chapter 6, you'll notice that the disciples come to Christ with the request to send away the people to get something to eat. You see that? The disciples come to him with the situation. These people, it's getting late. We're in a desolate place. Send them home. In chapter 8, Christ is the one who sees the situation and he goes to the disciples first. In chapter 6, you'll notice that he sees the crowd in verse 34, has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And his response is to teach them. His response is to meet a spiritual need before a physical one. To teach them what has been the central message of his ministry and is still the central message for the world today, to repent of your sins and believe the gospel as found in Mark 1.15. To turn from your sin and believe in Christ alone to save you from the wrath of God and is just punished for, for, for sin because that's how they would go from sheep without a shepherd to sheep with the best shepherd, the good shepherd of the sheep. In chapter six, his compassion for the people drives him to teach them. Here in chapter eight, his compassion for them, you'll see verse two and three, is for their physical well-being and their need for food. Now we mentioned this in first light, but if you weren't there, Are we concerned about not only the spiritual well-being, but also the physical well-being of others? Or we might flip-flop that. Sometimes it's easy to be more concerned about the physical than it is about the spiritual. But Christ was concerned about both here, and he models that for us. It's a wonderful picture of the caring Christ for our physical need. 
the fact that as believers, Christ, the risen Lord, the risen Savior, the risen King, is seated in heaven and he sees even now our physical needs and is concerned about it. The compassion of Christ for our problems, for your problems, whatever they are, Christ is well aware of those. Whatever those difficulties may be, whatever those situations. And may, I pray, may there not be a time this week that we hesitate to take our physical problems to God because, because we should know, we know the truth here, that he cares, so let's take them. Let's not hesitate. Let's not hesitate. Let's realize that his compassion, as we will see here in Mark 8, moves him to provide according to his plan. Now let's look at a few other differences between the feeding of the five and the feeding of the 4,000. In the feeding of the 5,000, you'll note that he's in a predominantly Jewish region with presumably almost entirely Jewish people. Well, here in chapter 8, Christ is ministering in a predominantly Gentile region. That's a huge difference. What a great reminder that he is able to satisfy and care for all who come to him in belief. All have access through belief in Christ to God. And this region, probably here in Mark 8, had some Jews living there as well. So you could sort of imagine this picture. 4,000 men sitting on the ground, plus women and children, predominantly Gentile. We know well, Gentiles, Jews, they weren't cozy. And yet here, Jews and Gentiles seated, being fed, listening to Christ providing for them. This intermingling of these two groups here in Mark 8 really foretells the beauty, the beauty and diversity and commingling of all people, every tribe, tongue, and nation that is in the church and should be in the church everywhere. In verse 4, we see the disciples ask Christ a question. Now, there's some, there's some different thought about this question. You'll see his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this dis- desolate place? There's some difference of thinking about this question. Some believe that it wasn't a question of impossibility. Some believe that this wasn't a question of impossibility, but rather an expression of the disciples' inadequacy for their needs, as if they were asking Christ by way of implication, so what do you intend to do? As if saying, we got the lesson back in the five, so what are you going to do about this? But I, I believe that the question, again, was fueled quickly by forgetfulness of the impossibility of the situation. I think that they were asking yet again, this one's impossible. What are we going to do with these 4,000? And the reason I think that, and the reason others think that as well, is that Christ addresses this event in that same light in a few verses over in verse 20. Now, this is, this is purely conjecture, 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 but place yourself sort of as a fly on the wall or a fly in the grass, if you will, in this situation. Now, if you've, if you've been to college, you've probably had a professor, as I did as well, that would respond certain ways when asked a familiar question. And maybe it's a, it's a, he goes on long rabbit trails or... He, pet peeves or whatever, whatever he does, comes up with a quick quiz, whatever it is, you probably have one of those, I had one of those, and I remember thinking, oh no, don't ask that question. You know exactly what happened. Remember what happened last time you asked that question? 
and the whole rest of the class. Well, I figured out pretty quickly in college that you could use those questions to your advantage. Because if you didn't study well, and you had a couple good questions, ask one or two and let the professor run, giving you time to study for the next lesson. Well, I'm sure one of the disciples, we don't know who's asking this question, but one of them, surely, one of them's got to be thinking, really? You're going to ask that question? Remember that last time? We were picking up 12 baskets for hours. We were, we were, we were collecting leftovers off green grass for quite a long time. Now, now, come on, don't ask that question. And yet, Christ is not only compassionate with the people, he's compassionate with the short-term memory of the disciples. And he takes what they have on hand, seven loaves, a few small fish. He gives thanks for each of them. And he provides for all the people until they are satisfied. And there are not a few leftovers. There are seven baskets full. Enough to remember this miraculous event. Now, You you need to know that the word for baskets in Mark 6 implies this sort of small picnic hamper style. Enough food for one, two, maybe three people. That's it, small. In chapter 8, this word implies a large basket. In Acts 9, the apostle Paul is lowered off the city wall of Damascus in a basket to escape persecution. That's the same word. That's the same type of basket. It's large. It's enough to fit a man. Seven, we might say, large man-sized baskets of leftovers. Christ provides for our physical needs, the physical needs of these people, and he's fully capable of providing for our spiritual, mental, relational, financial, etc., etc., whatever those needs might be. There is enough. There's plenty of Christ to satisfy our every need for all of those who will believe. Now look with me at the second point. It's found in verses 11 through 13. Belief is a prerequisite to understanding Christ. Now in verse 10, we we would note the change of scenery. They were seated on the east side of the Sea of Galilee in a Gentile region and immediately following the 4,000, feeding of the 4,000, they depart in a boat to the west side to the district of Damathua. Now, Matthew tells us that, that they went to Magdala. It's the same area. And that word Magdala might sound quite familiar because that would be the city where Mary Magdalene was from. It's a Jewish region. And upon Uh, the landing there, the Pharisees waste no time in confronting Christ again. Now, we don't know the amount of time that elapsed, but you sort of get the picture, by the way, that Mark is writing is they sail across the sea, they get there, the Pharisees are sort of waiting on the edge, and they come quickly, and they begin this confrontation. And back in chapter 2, they first, the Pharisees, first confront Christ In the beginning of chapter 3, you see that they get so upset at one of his miracles that they set out how to destroy Christ. And every occurrence that we see of this sort of confrontation between the Pharisees, scribes, and Christ is with the intention of trapping Christ for the point of justifying grounds to destroy him. In chapter 3, verse 22, they come from Jerusalem to confront Christ on the basis that his miraculous works are demonic in nature. 
And in many ways, that question of, are you doing things that are demonic in nature, is continued here in verse 11 of Mark 8. Notice that they, they come for the point of testing him. They didn't, come out of, they didn't come out of genuine faith. They come to him in opposition. If we pick up that analogy of the college classroom again, they're the smart aleck. Oh yeah, I think, I, I think I've got this figured out. I'm gonna test you. I wanna try to trap you and show you what I know and what you don't. Out of disbelief, out of unbelief to who he is and with the agenda of destruction, they ask him this question and they're looking for a sign. Now, they're not just looking for a miracle because he's just done a miracle and he's done plenty of miracles and they're well aware of that. They're looking from a di- for a direct signal from God and we could say by way of implication from 322, they're looking for a signal from God in order to say, aha, He's working with the devil on this. Let's destroy him. And Mark records for us the eyewitness detail of how Christ reacts. Notice he takes this deep sigh. Last week we saw that he took a sigh as well, but that sigh was more of both compassion and a bit of angst about the unbelief. This one is really almost a sigh of righteous anger. And he doesn't simply answer them As you see, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. But but really, he rejects them. You get the picture in verse 13 of, of Christ turning on his heel and walking away from them and getting back into the boat. There's really no relationship, much less communication going on. It's sort of a one way, you aren't gonna get it, turns and walks away. And it really makes all kinds of sense, doesn't it? Christ is dealing with them as they deserve to be dealt with. They came in obstinance and unbelief and he deals with them accordingly. He rejects them simply because they want nothing to do with him of who he truly is. But here is also the truth that Christ never rejects those who desire him out of proper desire. We're gonna see that in a minute. Out of the desire for faith, for understanding for the heart chains necessary to realize that Christ is the Savior of the world. Christ never rejects those with sincere requests that emanates from a proper posture of the heart. Or, to put it simply as our point says, belief is a prerequisite to understanding Christ. You won't understand him without belief. Unbelief blocks your ability to see the beauty and all-sufficiency of Christ, the Son of God. Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians one twenty two tells us, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Some of you may be sitting here this morning saying, I don't really get this. What's the big deal about this, this Jesus Christ? And apparently there's some sort of big deal because there's a bunch of other people in this room with Bibles open seemingly to get something out of whatever you're saying. But I don't get it. And the truth is that you won't get it until you believe. The Bible really won't make a a bit of sense until you believe. But the kicker is this, that you can't just decide, well then, if they all believe, 
I want to believe as well. Two plus two equals four. I can conjure up the mental line of thinking that that's something I should believe in. Brother, that is intellectual belief. That's a belief of the mind. And that won't do you any good. You have to have a belief of the heart. And then the response would be, all right, I want a change of heart. How do you do that? Tell me how I can change my heart so that I can believe like everybody else is believing. And the answer is that I can't do that because I don't know how to change your heart. Nobody else knows how to change your heart that is sitting in this room. But God does. And Christ is going to show us the way here in this third point. Look with me at your Bible, verse 14 through 21. The compassion of Christ never ceases to feed the believer. Third point, final point. The compassion of Christ never ceases to feed the believer. Now notice the situation. They had forgotten to bring bread and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. These guys are daft. <laughs> feed feed 4,000 people. We've got seven large baskets. Let's get in the boat. Oh, we forgot bread. I mean, it's all over the place. They sail all the way across, they get back, and then, and then on top of that, not only do they forget bread, they're discussing, boys, we, don't, we only got one loaf. What are we going to do? He's in the boat. Christ seizes upon that discussion, understands what they're going to be talking about, moves it to a spiritual, verse 15, and he gives them a warning. And it's a warning for us. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven, of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. You could say the leaven of the Pharisees, false teaching. You could say the leaven of Herod, this hostility against who Christ is. Remember, he kills John the Baptist. All throughout the Bible, leaven is this picture, this equal, this semblance of evil, of unbelief. A little bit of it, not much, just a little bit, but getting into the, 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 the lump of dough and, and, and ruining or changing all of the rest of the loaf. And so he warns them, be careful. Be careful of self-reliance. Be careful of, of, of self-dependence. Be careful of the, of the little things because they're going to affect everything. Here they want bread. Be careful of this self-reliance that you're the one who has to provide all of this because it doesn't end well. They don't get it. Verse 16, they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Well, hey, he mentioned the fact that we have leaven. Hey, he's on it too. We all forgot bread. And Jesus, aware of this, gets to a time of rebuke. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? He asks five questions here. Are your hearts hardened? Have I, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Twelve. Okay. We're just on the other side of the river, the, the, the sea. How many, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up of the 4,000? Seven. said to them, do you not yet understand? These 12 men, under the rebuke of God, of Christ, 
I think I could probably see myself in that boat. So quickly forgetting. Just a few minutes ago, he did this. Don't you see, Cody, what I've done for you yesterday? Don't you see you prayed about that and I did this? And here you are going, oh, how, how am I going to get nourishment here? How's this situation going to be resolved? We so quickly don't see the heart issue. We only see the surface issues. And yet Christ, compassionate, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't reject us as he did those in unbelief. He, he takes those who have belief and he compassionately feeds us. These questions here aren't a question of rejection. They're a question of see, see, see. Look, look what I'm doing for you. It's one of compassion. The reminder Christ gives, he, he gives that reminder after a warning and it's, it's telling that we need again and again and again the message of the power of Christ for us over and over and over again. We need this power of repetition. We need to come back to this passage over and over and go, okay, I know he did this and I know he did this, but I need to be reminded of that again because tomorrow I'm gonna, I'm gonna miss it again. And yet he compassionately continues to work for us. The message that Christ is compassionate is all satisfying as the bread of life to all who will believe. John 6 says that he's the bread of life and we don't put a lot of emphasis on this but I find it quite interesting that there's only one loaf in the entire boat and there's only one Christ. There's only one Christ that can truly satisfy for all who will believe and there's one loaf there and there's Christ. Where are we finding our nourishment? Where are you finding your nourishment? Is he your bread? Is he your sustenance? By application, let's find creative ways to be reminded, to stay reminded of the what and how and who that Christ is. If it's a verse over the kitchen sink, put a verse over the Christian sink, kitchen, kitchen sink. If it's a, if it's a, a screenshot of a Bible passage on your iPhone, do it. Whatever you need to do, something on your dashboard, as you get in, turn the car on, you see it, right? Whatever, whatever. Find ways to keep in front of you the reminder of what Christ is, who he is, and what he's doing. Because for those who believe, he's compassionately seeking to continually satisfy you with himself. But it can't be seen as all satisfying and compassionate as the needed nourishment for our life if you're an unbelief. Remember I said that I don't have the answer for how to change your heart and that Christ does give us the answer. He does so here. Look at his closing question. Do you not yet understand? And the simple answer is no. We don't. Because they can't understand and they won't be able to understand. And we can't believe unless there is a change of heart. And we can't change our heart. See, the, the, the point of all of this in Mark here is driving, whether it's, whether it's the deaf person with a speech impediment like last week, it's the 5,000, it's the 4,000, it's the blind person next week, all of it's pointing to the fact that, that unless God intervenes, we can't understand. That unless Christ intervenes, 
to help us understand. We don't have the ability to say, as we looked at last week, that he has done all things well. That's the significance of all of this. It's coming yet again to the fact, and, and jumping ahead here, 8, 27 through 30, Christ confesses, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, and his answer is, as we find in Matthew, you didn't come up with that on your own. God is the one who has intervened and shown you that. And the truth of this passage yet again is the fact that God has intervened. That the power of Christ has been made to us, made known to us this morning through his word. That, that he is the Christ. And that if we will but put our faith and trust in him, repent of our sin. Turn with him and, and not only experience the forgiveness of sin and the removal of his wrath from us, but also the joy of now being adopted children of God's heavenly kingdom. Heirs of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now friends with Christ. There's a change that happens there. You can't believe unless you're born again. How do you be born again? by the work of Christ in you, by God intervening through Christ. If you want that, you can have it. But it's not something that you do. It's something that God does in you. Nicodemus came and said, I, I want to know. How do you do this? Christ said, you have to be born again. There has to be a heart change to get this. The only way that heart change happens is if God intervenes. And I trust that his power will work on our hearts today, we'll continue to work on our hearts this week to remind us of the fact that Christ is, is compassionate, he's patient, he continues to show us that he's all satisfying as the bread of life. And he shows us that because he has given us the ability to believe. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is this morning to open your word. We thank you that not some story that's been put on repeat. You're trying to, out of love, teach us, help us understand you are the Christ. Your son is Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. The problems, the issues, the difficulties, the trials, the afflictions, all of those all of them are known by you. All of them find their end, find their resolve, find their answer in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Find their hope. Father, may we not be so quick this week. Give us just a bit of grace that we may not be so quick to lose sight to be so forgetful of what you've done for us today, last week, when you brought us to yourself, when we went from I don't get it to I love Jesus because I see he loves me. Help us to keep these things on the forefront of our hearts and minds. We thank you, Father, that your son sees us now, intercedes upon our behalf. 
is ruling and reigning. And one day we will be with him for eternity. In Jesus' precious name we pray.